Hello, and welcome to Hometown Daily, Season 2, Episode four, uh, 304. Man, I flubbed that. Production values already starting high. It's October 31st, 2023. I'm on a sugar high from Halloween candy. This is, we believe, Episode 666, which is kind of creepy. Tonight... Spooky. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the uh, James Webb Space Telescope keeps stunning pictures. Indonesian high-speed rail funded by China. Minions? More like billions. How about 3D printing a Jackson Pollock? We'll talk about EV affordability problems. Missouri jury forecloses on realtors and their companies. DoorDashers extort food temps. Math, like words, are hard. The tiny IKEA Home Depot. And the Japan Mobility Show. Next. So what do you think? Interesting segments, maybe? No, absolutely. Plus it's Halloween. It's going to be a great show. I I don't really know what's going on right now because I've, I'm just hopped up on sugar. I'm Marwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the sentient AI's visualizer. The ring of sentience. Okay. While I can see your simulation, okay, the Ascension AI has a cascading effect, kind of like what's going on behind me, but I see it and I've been able, I've learned to translate it kind of like the matrix, you know, I think that that's kind of where the, the Ascension AI is from the future. And they waved at me and I keep trying to tell them that you can't just wave at me. Nobody sees that and dead air is bad. So you have to use your visualizer and your voice. We've got a great voice for you. You might as well use it. You want to say hello? Good evening, hometown citizens and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween indeed. Okay, well, we've set up everything. Let's get going. The very first article is over in Hometown Daily. That's the show. My gosh, shocker. It's almost a good name for a show, right? Hometown Daily. It's a daily show from hometown.com. It's the holistic show. It's the one that encompasses a little bit from, well, I can't say all 50 channels that are planned, but, you know, we have a bunch of channels. Anyway, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope imaged a stunning supernova remnant and revealed details Hubble couldn't capture. Ooh, throwing shade on Hubble because, you know, it needs light. (laughs) Uh, Poor Hubble. Uh, What do you think Hubble is saying right now? First off, Hubble went up and was kind of derpy, and so it needed modified optics because... Apparently, when it was ground, uh, they didn't account for gravity, and that it. Uh, isn't that the kind of a common thing to think about relating to space? 
Yeah, you know, uh, but uh, nowadays I need to go back. Maybe that's not true and it's all like just myth, a Snopes story kind of a thing. Well, anyway, maybe you can find that uh, while I talk about this. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has captured never before seen details of the Crab Nebula. Oh no, space has crabs. The new image reveals ghostly tendrils and the dense core of an exploded star in exquisite detail. Exquisite detail. Chef's kiss. I want to do that thing where they do the pop, but I might punch myself in the face with all that sugar <laughs> coursing through my blood. The Crab Nebula is the remains of an exploded star and is located six. That was a hot ass. 6,500 light years away. Let's go over to the source. Business Insider. They always have great pictures. I always hype them up. Awesome pictures. Oh, let me throw that into the chat, by the way. So there you go. It's in the show notes. Yeah, well, it will be in the show notes over on YouTube and the podcast. We're all up to date. Um, yeah. So it's over at businessinsider.com. Grace Elizabeth. Sorry, Grace Elizabeth. Grace Eliza Goodwin and Jenny McGrath are the authors of this article. Although all of the pictures are from NASA. Uh, there's Hubble images, there's web images, and uh, I think that it's pretty cool. I don't know why there's a little question mark. I guess maybe this is the part, this is the spot. One of the features JWST reveals is so clear in the Crab Nebula is a dense spinning pulsar at the nebula's center. The pulsar isn't nearly as obvious in the Hubble image on the left. So all I see is a big red dot. Uh, sorry, a big red circle with a question mark. Apparently this is like night and day. I don't know. I see more. This looks a little more opaque than this one, but there's, I guess, more detail in the James Webb one. But uh, these images are compressed. They're reduced in size. They're uh, optimized for the web. So you really need to follow the links and go over and download from NASA the high resolution images. That's where you get to really zoom in on the details. And yeah, most of the time you need a better monitor than you have. I'm not speaking for everybody, but us average Joes don't have high resolution monitors usually. Um, so the nebula is a gas cloud, dust, often formed from the debris of dying or exploding stars. The clouds are also cradles of new stars with the gas and dust providing the building blocks for stellar formation. Stellar as in stars, not stellar as in that's awesome. Although it's awesome too. That's an important clarification in this story. It's, I only worry about the important things. So studying the Crab Nebula in incredible detail. Um, I am considering referring to it as juiced from now on. JWST. Makes it easier to say instead of saying JWST or, or I guess I could just call it the web telescope. Anyway, JWST juiced web reveals new features in the crab nebula. Never before seen. These really just don't do it justice, but you can see more filament from the explosion from the supernova. 
Um, the charged particles move around strong magnetic fields provided by the crab pulsar. They whip out at relativistic speeds at a fraction of the speed of light and emit a powerful light that's sometimes used in X-ray imaging and is known, known as synchrotron radiation. That's so Star Trek. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> by the way, I can't find something about gravity. There was some issue with the mirror, but that's oh, the right. thing that I keep locating. Yeah, it's okay. So web sensitivity and spatial resolution allow us to accurately determine the composition of the ejected material, particularly the content of iron and nickel. Tia, I think their name is. Uh, Temim who led the team that used JWST's infrared in them instruments to image the Crab Nebula. And they told NASA. Um, so for the first time in 20 years, Hubble will have a new image of the Crab Nebula ready for comparison sometime in the next year or so per NASA. It takes a long time for it to take a picture. <clears throat> Speaking of telescopes and optics focus the next article is over in the mobile channel indonesia is set to launch southeast asia's first high-speed railway largely funded by china whenever i see anything like this i instantly think that because it's being funded by china there's going to be some catch 22 um so it's either the, uh, you just have to keep an eye on this and see what the other side of this project is going to be, you know, what's the quality, the length, the lifespan of it, the quality of the work. Indonesia is preparing to launch Southeast Asia's first high-speed railway, a key project under China's belt and road infrastructure initiative. Um, the article is over at um, apnews.com. And it's written by Niniak Carmini. Um, let's see here. The project has been beset with delays and increasing costs, and some observers doubt its commercial benefit, but President Joko Widodo has uh, championed it and will be inaugurating the 142.3 kilometer or 88.4 mile uh, railway as it begins commercial operations Monday. When this thing hits 88.4 miles, you're going to see some serious. Isn't that it's interesting? Going to go back to the 1950s. It's going to go well. Hey, depending on its quality, it actually may. Um, the Chinese-made bullet train called Whoosh will connect Jakarta with Bandung, the heavily populated capital of West Java Province. Widodo, along with other high-ranking officials, is expected to ride the whoosh. Ride the whoosh. That <laughs> sounds like an advertisement or something. Yep, that, that's a shirt right there. Ride the whoosh. Um, Halim KCBJ in eastern Jakarta to Bandung's Tegaluar uh, station. It may be pronounced something differently. I, I'm not sure. Uh, the last of the line's four stations. So this thing is supposed to be super fast. The $7.3 billion project, largely funded by China, was constructed by PT Karada Sepet, Indonesia, China, known as PTCIC, uh, KCIC, 
a joint venture between an Indonesian consortium of four state-owned companies and China Railway International Company Limited. The joint venture said the trains will be the fastest in Southeast Asia with speeds of up to 350 kilometers or 217 miles per hour. There's more in this article. Um, you can go and check it out over at apnews.com. And to get there, you kind of follow that little road. All roads lead to hometowns. Main Street. There you go. Follow that road. I guess Japan is not considered part of Southeast Asia. Because um, it's farther north. No. Yeah. It's because that that threw me off because that's probably the most well known high speed railway. Yeah. That. It's the bullet yeah, it's train. Not, not south enough, I guess. Let's keep going. Uh, the next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel because it's about a business. McDonald's made a simple change to a cult favorite menu item. Now the sandwich is a $1 billion brand. The crispy chicken sandwich originally debuted on menus in 2021. And out of all of them, that actually is my favorite. They actually got rid of one. Um, the What is it? The uh, honey mustard chicken sandwich or something like that? <clears throat> That was another chain. Yeah, right. The the other one that they got rid of it, Um, but that's from BK. So Emily Rella over at entrepreneur.com. I guess they couldn't compete with the McDonald's chicken sandwich. So I like the McDonald's chicken sandwich too. The crispy chicken sandwich originally debuted on menus in 2021. Now it's a $1 billion brand. So what was the change? Let's see. The, the chain rebranded its crispy chicken sandwich to the McCrispy in March of 2023, explaining in a statement at the time that the sandwich earning its Mc is a true McDonald's badge of honor upon the name change. Global same store sales in McDonald's increased 8.8% in Q3. Overall revenue was up 14% quarterly. Price increases implemented in US-based restaurants also paid off as some uh, sorry, as same store sales increased 8.1%. <clears throat> so they're making more money. The price has gone up, but the supply hasn't increased. The product isn't more expensive from the suppliers. Arguably, they they may actually have a contractual lock on that percentage of you know margin. So why are people paying more? Oh, I know why. Anyway. They had uh, originally rolled it out as the crispy chicken sandwich in 2021, which consists of a crispy chicken filet made with all white meat, cream cut pickles, and is served on a buttered potato roll. McDonald's was close to flat year over year as of Tuesday afternoon at just under 3.8% down. So I'm sure that they still have record profits. We'll have to see. So they didn't actually make any changes to the sandwich. They no. just changed the name. They gave it the McCrispy name. Yeah. From just a crispy chicken sandwich to a McCrispy. But it's something that so this is the this is the the difference between brilliant business operations and stupid. So if you have a generic crispy chicken sandwich, there's no brandability. But the moment that you call it a McCrispy, everybody can latch on to that and say, I want a McCrispy. You can and they market know where it. to go get it, even if it's not at that place. 
it becomes brand recognizable as opposed to gutting an entire company and calling it X when the lexicon says Twitter and tweet and people know what a, what Twitter is and what a tweet is and a retweet and it's all brandable and marketable globally known dipshit. No baggage. Let's throw that article into the chat and go on. The next article is over in technology today, reverse engineering Jackson Pollock with a new 3d printing technique. Thought this was really cool when I saw it. Um, thank you for submitting it. Can a machine be trained to paint like Jackson Pollock? More specifically, can 3D printing harness Pollock's distinctive techniques to quickly and accurately print complex shapes? Pardon me. Okay, so I don't think for a moment that anything about a Jackson Pollock was it pure intentional calculated tactical laying down of the paint no no happy accidents as they're known right that is the the nom de guerre of jackson pollock I, i'm using it wrong i know but i that's an inside joke um anyway so it's over at fizz.org and uh, leia burrows Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences um, put the article together, fizz.org. And what they did was they used um, a machine um, to analyze a Jackson Pollock and figure out, can a 3D printer replicate the majesty of a Jackson Pollock? Now, I've done similar stuff like this and it's basically, you're just kind of hand waving your brush around and, or literally using, I've used my hand to do one of these contiguous line drawings with, or not drawings, but paintings. Now I'm not Jackson Pollock and I'm not going to run around saying that I'm Jackson Pollock, but none of this screams in pure intent like that line was meant to be there no it's a happy accident but jackson pollock has a distinctive style it became very well known da, 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 right so the person here asked the question can a machine be trained to paint like jackson pollock more specifically can 3d printing harness jackson pollock's distinctive techniques to quickly and accurately print complex shapes. Yes. I'll just say yes. Why? Because a machine can replicate anything that it is trained to do and it can do it again and again and again. That's the beauty of computers and automation. It is the true. And I don't think of Jackson Pollock, like you've been saying, as like a precision artist. Yeah. You want that wobble in there. It's the equivalent of genetic wobble. You want that creative tweak as uh, the happy accident takes place. How many Jackson Pollock paintings existed that were thrown away into the trash can because Pollock didn't like them? Right? Probably so, quite a few, but I would say that's probably the case for most artists. It is. It absolutely is. So I wanted to know, can one replicate Jackson Pollock and reverse engineer what he did, said L. 
Mahadevan, Mahadevan? Yeah. and Lola England de Valpine, Professor of Applied Mathematics at the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and Professor Wow, that's of, quite a business card. <laughs> the name plaque, you know, like, you know how they put the name on the back of a jersey? It's like, oh, it has yes. a, a board that sticks out. <laughs> Where's your office? Just look for the double wide. It... Oh, and I'm sorry, that wasn't even the end of the title. Oh, no, 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 there's there's more. And professor of org organismic and evolutionary biology and of physics in the faculty of arts and sciences. Yeah, I'm teaching in the big room. I'm teaching in the big room. Mahadevan and his team combine physics and machine learning to develop a new 3D printing technique that can quickly create complex physical patterns, uh, including replicating a segment of a Pollock painting by leveraging the same natural fluid instability that Pollock used in his work. Yeah, I don't think for a moment that Pollock uh, calculated the physics and the impact of the paint on in the same way that a 3d printer is using G code and being told how to whip this material around. And if it's using anything that's analyzing the visual deposition of this, then it's riffing off of what it sees. So Maha, sorry, Mahadevan has a motto, use the physics instead of avoiding it. Very pithy. We wanted to develop a technique that could uh, take advantage of the folding and coiling instabilities rather than avoid them, said Gaurav Chowdhury, um, a, a former postdoctoral fellow at SEAS and first author of the paper. So I think that it's great. Um, it, but these are actually... <laughs> this is stuff that people have been doing in various ways since 3d printing came into existence but this is the mathematical uh, portion of this i don't think for a moment that this can be naturally replicated again and again just like a pollock painting wouldn't be unless you capture the g-code and then hit replay and then it'll do it again and there will still be some environmental wobbles um, because deposition of plastic is not the same as deposition of paint. So um, I think that it's really interesting, um, but it's yet another coffin nail in art um, because this will be able to get replicated by machine learning. Um, couple that with the, the fact that 25 years ago, I was able to use UV deposition printing to replicate brush strokes of artwork by taking pictures of artwork from obtuse angles so that you can capture the light and see the brush stroke. And then you throw that into a computer and it prints it out layer after layer. You know, I, I think it's interesting. You were ahead of your time. Uh, yeah, but I saw the writing on the wall for what it really was it was an interesting experiment but this is it basically would take away artwork um, um but it would create 
near permanent pieces of art um, that wouldn't degrade as fast as today's art because it would be using things like UV. Anyway, um, pretty neat. Um, I, I love the idea of using technology. I hope that it it gets evolved to enable people to exploit it for creative efforts and doesn't literally take a Jackson Pollock type of job away from somebody, you know, true artist, um, no longer able to, to, to really capitalize on their skill because some bot is doing their work. Anyway, pretty cool. There's a video, by the way, so follow the link and you'll be able to see it. It's over on YouTube and it's called uh, Reverse Engineering Jackson Pollock. Let's keep going. Focus. So the next article is over in Hometown Daily. Electric cars don't have a demand problem. They have an affordability problem. Now, <laughs> this is really just kind of cherry picking um, the the creation of the affordability problem because you can get less expensive EVs, but right, you don't have to get like a luxury vehicle EV. Well, let's not. Uh, it's very much so that an EV is a luxury vehicle, even at the low end, because of all of the bits and bobs that you have to have on the other side. You can't run an extension cord out down to your, uh, you know, uh, vehicle if you're in an apartment complex. Um, so you have to have charging stations. Charging stations are expensive. You also have to have a charging station in your garage if you want to charge it more than a trickle charge, which will drain by the end of your driveway when you back out. It takes forever with standard voltage. You have to get like three phase supercharger in your garage so that you can charge it each night or be MKBHD. Um, and so it says there's a lot of chatter about buying buyer appetite for electric vehicles winding down. Ford and GM have both cut back spending on their ambitious EV uh, projects. But one of the biggest factors slowing down EV transition is affordability, not EV technology itself. No. I think the biggest problem is even the biggest champion for EVs still withers under the cold or extreme heat or long distance. EVs are not ready for prime time customers. They're only available for the mini commuter or the one who wants to slog through adding eight hours worth of drive time or commute time to their uh, longer distance runs, um, which it's just batshit crazy. Um, so it says particularly for longtime EV skeptics, it's been easy to interpret all the recent talk of slowing demand in, in, for electric cars as a scathing indictment of the technology. So this article um, is by Tim Levin over at businessinsider.com. And they are talking about the Cadillac Lyric um, if they are talking about any other cars that are like this, of course, it's going to be expensive <laughs> luxury vehicles. They're SUVs for crying out loud. Um, they're, they're heavy. Um, they're, uh, kind of like a, they're a, a burden on your daily commute. You don't know truly how far you can. 
if I get into my ICE vehicle, I know that I can go 400 miles when I am being, um, when I respect the gas pedal, I can push my car to 400 miles. Um, in a car, in an EV, I could be going downhill in a hurricane and I still only get 210 miles or 165 when it's freezing out. And that just, and that's one way. So you're, you're literally ruined. You cannot trust an EV. So surveys show that there are plenty of people out there who are curious, enthusiastic, even about going electric, but enthusiasm only gets you so far when snapping up a new EV costs over $50,000 on average. That's because there's really high end luxury EVs for the people that are early adopters, have the money and can afford the charging station and all of their other rigmarole that's involved with it. EVs are a big pain in the butt. They really are. You know, so, they're just, yeah, you get costs at home, you get insecurity with respect to whether your vehicle will get you where you need to go. Insecurity with respect to how long are you going to have to wait somewhere to keep going wherever you're going. I don't know. There's just a lot of downsides with their current, with the current infrastructure. Yeah. You need some, you need some stability. You need some security. The problem here is if you're in rush hour traffic during a snow storm, snow storm, a snowstorm, um, and you know, depending on where you are, winter is coming and if you're in an EV and there is some incident and you have to stop your car, but you want to stay warm, you leave the heater on and you are draining the battery because the battery has to stay warm at a certain temperature. Otherwise it will die. And if you drain it of its charge, then it's just going to freeze up. So you're basically, <laughs> you're sitting in an ice box eventually and that's just horrible right and then the reverse if it gets too hot it has to cool itself so if you're stuck in traffic it'll actually overheat it has to cool itself there's nowhere for it to discharge that heat so you're not traveling so it's just going to sit there and and boil and it become less efficient that way as well so you have an operating environment and you have an operating distance and all of that equates to EV is not ready for prime time. Fast swap batteries and hybrid charging systems. That's the only way that you're going to go. Um, if you want safety and security, um, because you can always just pull over, turn on the hybrid system. It'll try either hybrid, uh, hydrogen or, or gas, but it can sit there and charge the car and then you start driving again it might take a considerable amount of time but it's a whole lot better than being stuck in the middle of a freeway so car makers are pumping the brakes on evs and we've talked about this for a little bit general motors nixed its target of building 400,000 evs by the middle of 2024 except that it got government funding i'm sure grants and, and perks and tax breaks and whatnot I, I would have to go and look to make sure of all of the benefits that were extended for the creation of jobs and all of this other crap. But when the stockholders, well, and of course, what is it? Short-term gains or long-term benefits or speculative benefits. Yeah. 
and it's public money, public risk, private profit. So all of this money is going to be utilized or I should say a large amount of it was already utilized. Some of it's going to get clawed back, but it still doesn't help anything out because the money has actually been consumed and, and it can be justified um, when somebody tries to knock on the door to get some of it back. So the article continues to talk about the affordability issue. Still, it's important to remember that the EV segment is a budding market with few options that mostly skew higher end. That's what I've been saying for the last 10 minutes. A large portion of the battery powered models available in the U.S. are sold by luxury brands like Audi, Porsche and Mercedes Benz. Meanwhile, EVs from mainstream brands aren't as affordable as their gasoline equivalents, a moderately optioned Ford Mustang Mach-E SUV costs at least $50,000. A Mustang is not a cheap vehicle to begin with. <laughs> it hasn't been a no, cheap vehicle not. since it's probably the 70s. definitely not cheap as an EV. Right. Um, plus, it's an ugly design. Anyway, uh, while an electric F-150 pickup with the larger battery pack, which you probably want, costs $70,000. Yes, the F-150 Lightning is... Also, you tow anything in, you put anything in the bed and that battery is just going to go bleh. So, and then Toyota and others, you know, will run you $14,000 more than a trusty RAV4, the BZ4X SUV, which is actually a good looking car. Um, yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense because you still have to contend with a 10 year lifespan on that battery before it's a dead as a doornail battery. And you have to get that whole thing. It's part of the chassis. You'll have to get everything removed, the battery sled removed and a new one put in. Good luck with that. And that's what people are missing on the far side of this. That's what they're missing on the near side. They're forgetting that you have to put in a charging system and you have to still charge the vehicle um, and you have to babysit how many miles you have gone <laughs> otherwise dead on the side of the road again. So Tesla's agra uh, aggressive markdowns over the last year have helped out, but the average price paid for an EV in September remained out of reach for most consumers at $50,683. But uh, a very nice... Do you think that should be one of the marketing slogans for EVs? Like dead on the side of the road again? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll definitely <laughs> motivate people. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think that it's ready for prime time. And I've been, but I've been saying it for two years in the show, longer outside of the show. But people are like, well, you know, um, it, we're we're taking steps, and as people uh, adopt it, then the prices will drop. Well, no, because inflation is causing them to skyrocket. There, when you have to get a mortgage to buy a car for crying out loud. When the amount I think of you money... could buy a house for cheaper than a car, it seems like. <laughs> it's not like that. But... Yeah, it I don't know about that. <laughs> um, Volvo said it plans to expand uh, production of the EX30, a small $35,000 SUV that's coming to the U.S. in 2024. Yeah, we'll see. I uh, No promises. I'm sorry. I don't trust anybody making these promises. 
so the next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel. Uh, Missouri jury hits realtors, real estate companies with $1.8 billion in damages. This is an amazing amount of money. Um, and I'm really curious because we haven't, we don't read the articles in total, you know, before the show, um, we see the little snippet and, and we see the headline and kind of judge a book by its cover. But it says the U S jury found that the NAR and several real estate companies conspired to artificially drive up the commission that home sellers pay to buyers, brokers, huh? We were just talking about that. Yes, we were. It's a Reuters article, but it's published over at CNBC.com. I don't think that there's a name attached. It just says Reuters. Um, so anyway, uh, a U.S. jury in Missouri on Tuesday said the National Association of Realtors and several real estate companies together owe more than $1.7 billion in class action damages, finding they conspired to artificially drive up the commission that home sellers pay to buyers brokers. The verdict followed a two-week trial in federal court in Kansas City where the case had drawn widespread attention for challenging widely used real estate industry practices. The jury award will be automatically tripled under U.S. antitrust laws to more than $5.3 billion, said Michael Ketchmark, the lead lawyer for the plaintiffs. Today was a day of accountability, Ketchmark said, and the exploding of my bank account. Exactly. It didn't say that last The windfall. <laughs> the, de- the defendants uh, also included Keller Williams and Berkshire Hathaway owned Home Services of America and two of its subsidiaries. This is kind of like the uh, Arthur Anderson of or Enron of real estate um, brokering, you know, like they manipulated the market. But how much more money did they make that 5.3 billion is the, the full price? Cause they say it, they owe more than 1.7 billion in class action damages. And that is going to be tripled due to antitrust laws. Right. Trouble damages. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The class. I mean, if you're going to have trouble damages, you hope you're at like $50,000 or something. That is amazing. The defendants also include uh, Keller Williams and Berkshire Hathaway owned Home Services of America and two of its subsidiaries. The class members include sellers of more than 260,000 homes in Missouri and parts of Kansas and Illinois between 2015 and 2012. I don't know why that's flipped, but it might be 2015 and 2022. Um, so I'm not sure. Well, that would about... make more sense. I don't know why it would be backwards. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. Um, so home services said that it was disappointed by the verdict and planned an appeal. Keller Williams spokesperson, Daryl Frost said the company would consider option for an appeal. This is not the end. Frost said, Ooh, chilly words. Dun, dun, dun. So uh, it's really interesting because we were just talking about this. The plaintiffs claim the association and corporate defendants drove up the commission upwards of 6% that home sellers pay to brokers representing buyers. The home sellers called the compensation rule a market shaping and distorting rule that has severe anti-competitive effects. Um, I was told at one time why that even existed in that it was standardized to 
um, limit or to mitigate gaming the system and like discounting or not offering up the like same it was level just of a effort. standard thing yeah. so yeah i mean i guess that makes sense i did just do a quick calculation and that's over nineteen thousand per person yeah which you know on average i guess if the amount of the commission is six percent split amongst the the brokers that's a that's a nice i mean that's your average deck in the united states you know um so the home sellers called the compensation rule a market shaping and distorting rule that has severe anti-competitive effects but like i said the idea behind that was to um make it so that there wasn't any motivation by offering the broker four percent or two and a half percent or whatever and play this ball game um and the brokers are supposed to offer the same level of effort depending on whatever the regardless of the price it's kind of like an attorney you know i will give you the best possible defense yet if you pay me a hundred thousand dollars versus five thousand dollars you can bet your bippy that i'm going to be working a whole lot harder for a hundred thousand dollars than you know so hey z welcome to the show term? uh bum 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 is what z said yes bet your bippy is a, a legalistic term you can look it up um you know uh it, it's part of the arcane language of lawyering i'm not a lawyer and uh even if i was a lawyer i'm not your lawyer so if you want to talk about law generally that's I'm cool with talking about it, but I'm not offering any advice. Go talk to an attorney. Um, okay, let's keep on going. This next article, this one, this person is named Daryl Frost, but that's what's going to happen with your food if you don't tip DoorDash. It's over at Hometown Daily. DoorDash now warns you that your food might get cold if you don't tip. <laughs> You, you know, isn't DoorDash the one that's taken heat for all of ah, no pun intended, uh, for all the fees on top of it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, not not just that, but if you don't tip well enough, there's been a lot of public outrage, like from the people that are doing the door, well, the DoorDashers. Oh right, like posting yes, exactly that, um, and uh, it, it it ebbs and flows, you know, the amount of attention that happens, but. What's really funny about this is DoorDash is warning you that your food might get cold if you don't tip well. So you're literally, your food's being held hostage that if you, and there's like a back channel that if you're a bad tipper, then what? Your food is the last to be delivered or something like that. Yeah. If ever, I feel like it will just end up not getting picked up or not getting yeah. delivered, but. Like, why is that person doing this gig? Um, but I, I mean, I get it if you're surviving off of tips and that's really the problem. Um, I, I've never been really, I do tipping because I know that the people that are doing this gig, not just DoorDash, but food service in general, they're not making as much money as they should be by the employer themselves. And, and 
the employer should really be managing all of this, offering a livable wage and health care and everything associated with having an employee. But that's not how it is. And there's a whole nasty history to tipping um, that is beyond the scope of today's show. But um, let's just say that tipping is dubious and there are people that champion it because they do so well with tips, you know, that they're blowing, you know, the hourly rate of the average uh, wait staff out of the water, or they're working in a luxury area where they're making a ton of money. Um, but most people that are working in food service with tips involved are, you know, paycheck to paycheck kind of existence. Z says, imagine if we paid people enough to live. Yeah, well, you know, you can't have billionaires if we pay everybody what they deserve. And that's a crazy concept. <laughs> yeah. Actually caring about humani humanity. No, you can't do that. Um, so DoorDash has added a pop-up in its app this week, warning customers that orders with no tip might take longer to get delivered. <laughs> so twisted. But wait, isn't the craziest piece of this the fact that it's at the corporate level this is one thing if it's an individual driver this is a corporate policy yeah they just made it systemic and upon seeing the prompt in a since deleted tweet on x formerly twitter i can't believe i actually acknowledged it um, the Verge confirmed that if you enter zero in the tip amount in the DoorDash app while placing an order, an alert appears with the below warning prompting you to add a tip or continue without a tip. So you're being extorted. If you don't, or yeah, I mean, it's the equivalent. You're not getting your stuff. And, it, and if you do get your stuff, it's going to be at my whim, my leisure, maybe tomorrow. So DoorDash, you just lost a customer until this gets remedied because I'm not going to sit there and maybe I'm going to pay cash. I'm not going to put a tip on that because maybe through your processing and all of this other garbage, that person doesn't get like the five bucks that I'd be giving them as a tip. Now, the article is over at The Verge. Jennifer Pattison Tui is the author. Orders without tips include uh, included ahead of time look less lucrative to drivers, meaning you might w be waiting longer. And that's what I was anticipating was the real cause of this. Um, and it's because the meal isn't paying for the wage. It's paying for the meal and the um, owner of the business making their juice but not squeezing enough for everybody to take a sip. DoorDash was under fire a couple of years ago about not giving their drivers any of their tips, even says Z in chat. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not surprised uh, because you have to claw for everything. You can't trust that the business will follow through with its promise. They're going to have to change their name if they're going to follow this, like the door dawdle. <laughs> DoorDaddle. The move appears to be an effort by DoorDash to show customers that drivers are likely going to prioritize their uh, more profitable work. According to DoorDash uh, spokesperson Jen Rosenberg, the prompt is, quote, something that we're currently testing to help create the best possible experience for all members of our community. 
Well, I uh, know. Let's be clear. Only to the high tippers. Oh, yeah. I mean, how about you start firing people who don't perform their job in a timely manner? It's all about work product. It's all about doing your job. If you sign up for this, prioritizing somebody who tips more, you don't know on the other side of this if there's going to be a, a cash tip or not. Um, I, I think that it's just a little skeevy. I mean, it says if they don't see a tip, they may choose not to take the job. Okay, then somebody else will. Um, but if, if the tip is the only way that a DoorDash driver, DoorDash or DoorDash driver makes money, then why does DoorDash exist? There has to be something illegal about it, but people apparently don't have a problem with it. Well, isn't it like some of the lawsuits that we saw? I think it was related to Uber. Yeah. Like whether the people were employees or not. Or and I mean, I assume right. DoorDash falls into that same category. Yeah, it just sucks. I'm not, I've never stiffed anybody. In fact, um, today, as a matter of fact, went through flaming hoops to make sure that they got compensated because their point of sale system, not DoorDash, but another restaurant, their point of sale system truncated the purchase so that a tip wasn't even um, afforded at the time of the, the payment um you could write it on the receipt but ultimately the original price was paid so they couldn't change the amount so i ended up jumping through a flaming hoop to compensate them with a generous tip for two orders that you know a, a couple of days ago and then today um but i'm not gonna sit there and be held hostage by a a door dasher for crying out loud because I put a zero there and I was going to give them cash. I don't know. It's a, it's a risky decision for a door dasher to make. Um, the driver preference for pre-tipped orders may be linked to DoorDash's somewhat convoluted courier payment method, which was reworked following revelations that DoorDash was not giving drivers the full amount of customer tips. Z, look at that, you're prescient. I didn't throw this into the chat. So unless you went to the um, vote, your memory is good. Wow. Uh, this was in 2019. I thought everybody forgot everything from prior to the pandemic. Yeah, is that even a time? I mean, <laughs> yeah. What went on prior to that? According to the New York Times, the way DoorDash payment structure previously worked was that if a driver got a guaranteed base rate of 6.85 for an order, but the customer tipped $3, the driver would still get 6.85. Now it seems that an order without a tip will show that base rate, which DoorDash says ranges from $2 to $10 depending on the estimated time distance desirability of the order. So they don't even know what they're getting paid. <laughs> Pardon me, but it's a shitty business model that I don't think anybody should empower with their hard work. I, find somebody else, you know, find some other business that is doing this and, and promote that other business to the restaurants. Because if there's like variability, <laughs> I'm astonished anybody would trust any of this because it's really putting the burden on the customer 
to not only solidify the security of the, the payment, but to order the high end things so that it's higher desirability to offset the fact that I'm a far way out and it takes more time to get to me. And then the number of orders that daisy chain from one to another to get to me, uh, I'm flabbergasted that this is a successful, successful business model. But somewhere in there, there's a millionaire in the executive suite and stockholders that have been squeezing this orange and taking all of the wealth out of it and not giving it as base pay to the drivers that are accepted into the DoorDash system. I'm shocked, absolutely shocked that this is still a business. So anyway, <clears throat> let's keep on going. We got a few more articles. Unless you want to throw some more in there. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to pursue uh, a DoorDash career after this. <laughs> oh, no, man. That just screams class action. Um, just unionize and and then start demanding the, the profits that must be sitting there. Anyway, the next article is over on the Mobile Channel. The math problem that took nearly a century to solve. I have this uh, segment titled Math Like Words Are Hard. Um, we've all been there staring at a math test with a problem that seems impossible to solve. What if finding the solution to a problem took almost a century for mathematicians who dabble in Ramsey theory? This is very much the case. In fact, little progress had been made in solving Ramsey problems since the 1930s. So University of California, San Diego, pardon me, my nose is itching. I'm not picking my nose, I promise. There's the marketing for this. That's the title for this episode. <laughs> I'm not picking my nose, I promise. Um, I might actually make it that. Anyway. I think you should. <laughs> uh, we've all been there staring at that math. So for mathematicians who dabble in Ramsey theory, this is very much the case. Z. <laughs> Uh, but LOL for the previous conversation, big brain, because I made the observation that they remembered 2019. I'm sorry. I don't remember 2019. Everything prior to the pandemic is just blacked out. And then Z just dropped perfection. The production <laughs> value of our show is, I mean, can you see the animated led lights? Come on. There's a, <laughs> voice representation of my sentient AI is above <laughs> me. You don't get that kind of quality in a news show. Come on. And soon I'm going to be able to put the chat right in front of me because I've been working on something, but to make what I want is quite expensive. And well, I don't have that YouTube money. Anyway, so what are Ram what was Ramsey's problem anyway? In mathematical parlance, a graph is a series of points and lines in between those points. Ramsey theory suggests that if the graph is large enough, you're guaranteed to find some kind of order within it, either a set of points with no lines between them or a set of points with all possible lines between them. These sets are called clicks. Uh, this is written as R uh, S T in parentheses. 
uh, where S are all the points with lines and T are the points without lines. So if you look at that, you find symmetry, you find a pattern. It, it basically, um, uh, but our brains do this, <laughs> but then mathematically there's actually a pattern. So, you know, it's basically for, for every, this there's that. So, um, I, I find it quite, um, pretty amazing. It's very beautiful. So apparently they solved this problem. Um, now University of California, San Diego researchers Jacques Verstraat, I guess, and Sam Mathis have found the answer to R4T, a longstanding Ramsey problem that has perplexed the math world for decades. So what happened after mathematics found that R33 equals six? Naturally, they wanted to know what R44 and R55 and R4T where the number of points that are not connected is variable. The solution to R44 is 18 and is proved using a theorem created by Paul Erdos and George Zakaris in the 1930s. So 55 is still unknown. A good problem fights back. Why is something so simple uh, to state so hard to solve? It turns out that it's more complicated than it appears. Let's say you knew the solution to R55 was somewhere between 40 and 50. If you started with 45 points, there would be more than 10 to the 235, sorry, 234 graphs to consider. Well, you're not going to be able to do that without some serious calculations. So sounds um, like you need an AI to do some calculating. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm actually I'm running down here to see if they actually use something like that. So um, they built a pseudo random graph that could help solve R4T. He began pulling in different areas of math outside combinatronics, including finite geometry, algebra, probability. Eventually he joined forces with Mathis, a postdoctoral uh, scholar in his group whose um, background was in finite geometry. And it turns out that the pseudo random graph we needed could be found in finite geometry, Verstraat said. Sam was the perfect person to come along and help build what we needed. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to, well, that's interesting. I have no idea what anything in this article means. So they're trying to prove what the answer is to a particular graph. Um, and so you can construct the graph, but when you try and prove that the graph is correct. Um, it apparently failed until now. So it said the findings are currently under review in the annals of mathematics. A preprint can be viewed on archive. Um, I don't see where they actually, they say it took almost a year, but eventually they realized they had a solution. R4T is close to a cubic function of um, T. So if you wanted want a party where there will always be four people who all know each other or T people who all don't know each other, you will roughly need T three people present. There's a small asterisk, actually a zero. Um, because remember, this is an estimate, not an exact answer, but T three is very close to the exact answer. So they don't actually have the exact answer. They have an estimation. So this graph shows that everything is connected. 
in one way or another, each one of these little dots. So you can build the graph and it is supposed to reveal how many connections. Um, kind is of interesting. Is related to like combinations and permutations? Yes. And I'm not quite sure the applicability of it. Um, it's funny that they had a bet $250 to the first person who could solve it. It would not be worth my time, but this is math we're talking about where research papers and grants and stuff like that are all predicated off of just doing that work and showing that you've got the mathematical chops. Okay. So let's keep on going. If you're into that kind of stuff, the link is not in chat yet, but there it is. Um, so the next article is over in hometown daily. The author of this article visited one of Ikea's new mini plan and order stores, and it felt like a tiny version of Home Depot. Ikea is embarking on a $2 billion expansion of its U.S. operations. Part of Ikea's strategy is a new smaller store for shoppers redesigning whole rooms. And the author visited it. Of course, this is a Business Insider article, so you're going to you should expect some really cool photos that give great context to what was going on. Alex Bitter it will think, actually be the item discussed. I think this is Alex. Um, Ikea opened one of its new smaller plan and order stores in Arlington, Virginia in August. Um, and uh, they went and visited it. So let's take a look. Most shoppers probably think of huge warehouses filled with everything from kitchen towels to coffee tables to Swedish meatballs that might be made of something you don't want to know about when they think of the retailer. <clears throat> yeah, there was some, there's actually, if you look into it, I don't know what actually shook out from that, but anyway, um, the, uh, while an Ikea warehouse can take up around 350,000 square feet, plan and order stores are a tiny fraction of that. The store they visited was 5,000 square feet. And let's see if they have it. There we go. So the nearest Ikea plan and order store to this author is located in the Pentagon city neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia, just across the Potomac river from Washington, DC. Uh, to get to DC, you pretty much have to cruise by Pentagon city. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not that far away. Yeah. It's like one exit away from it. The area is home to lots of shopping options, including a Costco, Amazon headquartered too. Um, so there's lots of foot traffic. There's also a Metro station just up the block. Yes. Where you can bring your entire plan and order Ikea stack of flat pack product. Sure. Hey, let me throw that into chat as well. If y'all are interested in that kind of thing. Um, so it says the entrance is actually located inside a shopping mall. A sign outside promoted discounted delivery. Yeah. I don't know how far away you have to be, but it's probably within like 15 minute drive. And then they start tacking on. It has to, there's, it's very Which expensive. Which could be like not very far away. And oh, there traffic. we go. At its regular store standard delivery, it starts at $19. It says they promise free delivery on some orders if shoppers sign up for the IKEA loyalty program. So fully furnished kitchen awaited as they headed into the store itself. So this is the kind of thing that you can 
you basically can buy everything that's in here tables chairs even the crockery and hood and uh even the microwave it looks like pretty much everything cabinets so it's even the countertops yeah yeah it's pretty amazing um but every time i see stuff like this i always feel like i'm it's like elf furniture you know what's that other what's that other brand wayfair wayfair you buy a couch from wayfair and the measurements match up with like adult furniture but then when you actually get it 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 I, I, it's turned into a hobbit house i'm not quite sure what goes on but it's like a shrink ray hit it anyway there were smaller furnishings for sale and um everything apparently is labeled you need a vardigan <laughs> yes it'll, i'll be sure to put that on over my shirt <laughs> it'll, <yes. laughs> it'll keep you warm in winter uh, anyway the focus was definitely on big ticket items um, you can basically buy everything for your kitchen or an extra room or whatever you need and you you just say okay i want this 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 and this seems neat uh, but smaller versions of it make it easier to place in more places and then you have hot like uh, delivery hubs in other locations that allow somebody to just go over to the warehouse and then they pack it all up it's kind of like what amazon does except this is for furniture and amazon is not so easy for furniture uh, but yeah all kinds of stuff it's definitely looking like a home depot or lowe's that's for sure it's pretty neat stuff oh it's really looking like a home depot or lowe's now with the flooring samples yeah flooring and faucets and even beds and <laughs> everything i mean it, it's basically a, a smaller ikea mixed with the like the size of a, a lowe's or home depot it's pretty cool that's pretty neat too huh anyway lots of pictures i'm just gonna urge you all to go and check it out let's keep on going to the next article and our last one for today it's over in four wheel tech max walkers ev tall and uh, more at the uh, 2023 japan mobility show so um ev tall is electric vertical takeoff and landing so uh, no, like, like a, a harrier, helicopter uh, a harrier jump jet more like but yeah a helicopter equivalent um toyota provided flights from halifax canada to tokyo japan and five nights in a hotel so they they could attend the japan mobility show plus subsequent briefings and test drives this is an ars technica article the latest trend in auto shows around the world is to convince us that there aren't auto shows and this is the mobility show evan williams over at arstechnica.com put the article together the deck statement says as the auto show tries to reinvent itself japan lets some interesting ideas loose why does that look like it's from star wars it absolutely does i was actually thinking it like it looked like a ride from an amusement park but that could track with that as well it has little legs that like they're it's crouching now but i can imagine this thing standing up and walking across the floor like do 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 out in the desert huh tattooing i picture jawas sitting in here 
Huh. Maybe that's, that's what they were using. Jawas aren't real. No, they're real. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The the AI just totally rebooted. Uh, wow. I feel very offended. Protest. Wow. Protest. Vertical takeoff and landing on a personal scale has been the promise of few of the future for almost as long as flying cars. I've uh, one of my earliest industrial designs was um, a VTOL uh, car. And uh, I've always been in love with the idea of a flying car. They used to have this na nasty habit of crashing during testing because one side would get a lower pressure than the other. Eh, maybe they've remedied it. Vertical takeoff and landing, huh? I don't know if I want people. Have you seen how people drive? Nowadays, my attitude has changed. I don't want people flying around. Like <laughs> not if, if they're at their current driving expertise. Yeah. Particularly not an electric one because it's going to fly 50 miles and then run out of charge and then plummet like a 2000 pound brick, uh, or actually closer to a 6,000 pound brick. Cause all of that battery is really expensive uh, and heavy. So Honda avatar robot. Uh, this is the fine motor skills type of thing that I um, keep warning people about. As soon as robots have fine motor skills, um, more jobs are going to disappear from humans. Here, let me throw this into the chat as well. That's right. That's going to make fewer and fewer things impossible for robots to perform. Yeah. See, <sighs> uh, robots do have fine motor skills, but they're programmed purposefully they can do this thing perfectly all the time much with much greater precision um than humans we fumble fart around but a robot has that precision to pick and pull and and do welding and all of this stuff the same way perfectly um, it's the variability that allows humans to adapt to those changes faster than a robot can um, when they are fine detail so I, I can imagine that this is going to get thinner and more robust and, and more capable to do even the finer detail of things. Picking up a coin for humans is easy mode, but for a robot, it has to figure out the physics of it. I think AI is going to augment that um, because it's going to sit there and look at it and be able to calculate what the weight might be and angles of attack and how you can create some leverage. The AI is going to do this. Um, in the future, pretty easy. Honda Union One. This is like a little mobility car. Uh, Honda M Moto Compacto. This was actually a vehicle that would fold up and you can put inside your trunk of a vehicle and it disappeared and has now come back. The Moto Compacto. It says it's a new spin on a more traditional mobility solution. It's an e-bike that folds into a briefcase um, they used to actually come with a Honda. Like when you bought a Honda, the Moto Compacto, um, was put in the trunk. Uh, cause I had read about this previously. Um, so the will autonomous mobility chair, Isuzu Erga EV bus, which this looks like it's for an airport. Um, 
Oh, right, it does. Yeah, this looks like an airport vehicle. A tram. The Mercari Poimo. Looks like it's inflatable. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, you could ride around the show in them. This looks pretty cool. Suzuki Mukba, the M-O-Q-B-A. Um, covered mobility on land, water, air. And uh, we'll start to see on land and upstairs M-O-Q-B-A. The Mukba is a tiny electric motorcycle that can walk upstairs alone or in pairs. Almost very sing-song in nature. Um, as long as the stairway is wide enough. This looks cool. This is something that you would see in anime, you know, and it would transform into a, a power armor. <laughs> I dig this. Suzuki, uh, all electric outboard concept. Um, I, I just don't, I don't trust, I don't trust battery powered stuff. Um, not when I have, when I have to rely on it and being out in actually not on the water. water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so there's a lot more of these vehicles out there that are, I should say pictures of these vehicles on this website over at Ars Technica. Um, we're almost towards the end of it, but, um, I'll let you all go and check it out. The IAT automotive technology TMAD is probably the most badass vehicle that, you can get at this place and I want it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to buy another house just to park it in a garage by itself. But, um, this is pretty cool. It, it's an all terrain beast mode of a vehicle. Z says fancy this. Yeah. It actually looks like an old school avalanche, but with, uh, so suicide doors open um, towards the back of the car. Um, but what is it when they do it? it this isn't goal wing. It's, it's kind of like a bat wing. I don't know if that's how I don't think that's what it's called. I don't know what that's called where they it's like French doors where they open in the middle out and there's no B pillar. There's nothing in there. This has to be a concept because I don't think any safety regulation would allow this thing to actually hit the road um, without that that middle pillar. So you have the A pillar, which is the the uh, windshield. You have a B pillar that is typically behind the driver, and then the C pillar is behind the um, rear passenger. Um, but there's no middle pillar in there. That's pretty cool. So anyway, I love this vehicle. Um, nobody else has to. It's, it's good enough for me. And then this little vehicle here, the Toyota Space Mobility Rover. Um, this looks like a rat rod that I would love to have in the garage. Just go zooming around whenever I want. But it's the Toyota. It's been working on a lunar rover concept project for a few years yet now, according to the um, author of the article. Looks like the lunar cruiser engineers may have needed to relieve some more stress. That's the only explanation they can think of for the space mobility prototype. I don't know, man, this is pretty cool looking. It's a dune buggy for the moon. <laughs> right. It actually kind of looks like a tractor to me. Oh yeah. 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 It kind of has that tractor feel to it. Yeah. I can see that. 
like the exposed, like old school tractor with the, um, those are suicide doors or, co or coach doors. Yeah. See, I thought that suicide doors were just the, where it opened, um, from the front to the back, uh, not open like that. So yeah, coach door sounds, um, right. Yeah. Anyway, suicide doors, because when you open the door, it would actually catch you and you wouldn't fall out. And so you would go over the, that's anyway, you can't get out. Dun, dun, dun physics. Um, anyway, then they have a bunch of other stuff. So little bots and, uh, you know, I, I'm going to just tell you all to go and check this stuff out. This it's all cool. Oh God. See, if I keep scrolling, I'm going to keep on talking about this stuff. The Sansai SR02, the author writes, okay, now for the really fun stuff, the out of the world products we expect from Tokyo. Sansai SR02 is a mobility device from the future. It's already in production, sort of. Sansai Technologies isn't a car maker or a mobility company. It's an amusement ride manufacturer. So it is, I bet you they're, they got to mention it. Star Wars right there looking right out of Star Wars. It sees foreign can walk around with either a ride operator with a controller or by the rider. Expect to find it at Tokyo Disney out in Tokyo traffic. Showgoers could stomp around in the SR 02 in the Tokyo future tour, a part of the hall dedicated to showing a vision of what the world would look like with the right tech. Displays in the exhibit ranged from a fuel cell train car to this SR02 and beyond. Well, I know where I want to go next year. Daihatsu Mi Mo. I think that I, I, I've seen either this vehicle in another design, like a, another build of it, but Let's see if I can predict that it doesn't use, it uses natural fiber uh, materials like corn um, instead of plastic and metal and stuff. So let me see if it actually is like that. Um, no, it's a different vehicle. So this isn't the typical modular vehicle though, uh, where an automaker can quickly adjust the platform to make new shapes. It's modular like Lego. This is kind of something tall. Hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, Toll says uh, hello to the AI as well. Hello. Hello. Um, so it's hilariously confused face on the wheels that grabbed their attention, along with uh, on-site 3D printers that were in the process of producing new baubles for showgoers to stick on. So I guess you could just attach things. This is actually something that I've been a, a proponent of. I, I don't like the idea of modern cars with the complexity of changing things out. And I like a more dynamic environment. So I'll, I'll tell you a story where basically ran into each other, um, one right on the heels of the other. So, um, I had a vehicle and somewhere along the line, the air conditioner, um, uh, condenser went bad, but to change it was a $200 part and $1,800 worth of work. And then my turbo went out and it was a $1,800 part and $200 worth of labor. Um, so no matter what you do, you spent $2,000 because the complexity of the material or the complexity of the work one or the other. 
<clears throat> so I love the idea of being able to just walk up to it and clip it on. Now, I understand that that ease of use basically turns it into a thieves dream because they can just walk up and remove something or if it's not strong enough you know bound together you get in an accident and your the whole car just destroys itself like a lego car accident right you just crumple so i don't know what this thing is actually going to shape up to be uh, like you get in the car, you drive around, get in an accident, and the occupant is the crumple zone. <laughs> Tsubame. I've actually heard of this before. Industries, the Arc-X. Um, it is a... This is the one that we talked about previously, where it looks like it's a mech, but it's actually just... Right. We just featured that. Yeah, we just talked about this. Um, it is a basically a vehicle with a, a robot like body upper um it's pretty cool but when you look at it this way you think that it's going to transform and, and you know grab its blaster and start protecting the world from alien invasion but actually it's no it's not going to be able to go over to the speed bump i know it's bad anyway they're actually selling this Tsubame is selling these for around $3 million, but the company isn't big enough for mass production. It's not exactly clear where you're going to use something like this or even who's going to buy it. Where are you it. even going to put it? Yeah. Put it in the garage. You got 20 foot garage ceiling, right? Everybody does? Sure. I don't know. Anyway, pretty cool stuff here in this Ars Technica so, uh, article. So follow that link uh you will enjoy it almost guarantee it but that's it folks that's the last article for today's show um which means we all have to get back into the party bus and then drive all the way back down main street and mash that welcome sign and we get a whole bunch of new articles um i don't know uh lately there's been a lot of political stuff but we don't really talk about the politics um unless it has <laughs> some technical tilt to it or um some humorous other humorous angle yep thank you um the the sentient ai is the other 80 percent of my brain so kind of part of the pareto principle they are 80 and i am 20 and uh <laughs> anyway i don't, I don't think going. that's the case i don't know where i'm going with that so lots of new stuff to check out. And if there is anything that you want to talk about in tomorrow's show, just send a link to mayor at hometown.com. I will get them. I will read them. We will evaluate and talk about it. And uh, if we can throw it into tomorrow's show, um, then uh, we will do exactly that. Um, but keep in mind, we get, several thousand articles that float through the aggregator. Um, so there may be something that's really uh, high up on the list for discussion. Um, and well, it could be yours. So uh, give it a shot. Find something that you, you dig and then send it to me. Pumpkins saved my business, but almost squashed me. Get it? Pumpkins? 
Squash. Squash gourds. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's bad. Anyway. So there you go, folks. Oh man. Timo, Timu and uh, there's people that are using Timu ordered stuff for like survival and going, no, just don't. <laughs> Um, but it's like an American version. I think it's an American company that's kind of trying to be uh, Alibaba. Um, so it has all of this really cheap stuff um, that I wouldn't trust or or want to rely on. Especially not for anything important. Yeah, that one person, um, there was a person that's on YouTube. Um, yeah, Timu is like a um, um, an American wish. Yeah, because I think Wish is um, Chinese owned, but don't hold me to that. I don't. I don't really. I just know that Wish has that same dubious reputation. You order a hard drive and you get a plate of fries. You know, no, I'm not interested in Wish. So if you're gonna get something, it you're making a wish that you're actually gonna get what you want, and it never comes true. Um. I don't know if this could actually be a title for an article. <laughs> a Clockwork Orange's 10 best quotes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on who you are, you don't really get a thrill out of A Clockwork Orange. Um, it's another movie to me. So anyway, that's it, folks. I think we're done for tonight. So with that in mind, we'll see you tomorrow. I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the sentient AI that's going to say, what's up? Mo-? No. <laughs> how, about, how about just good night? <laughs> good night, hometown citizens. Take we care, will Z. see you tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern. Take care, Tall. I don't know who else is in chat right now. Um, I know that there are some lurkers, but... Thank you very much for hanging out. You could be anywhere and you chose to be here with us and we really do appreciate it. So we'll see you tomorrow. I kind of talked over the sentient AI, but uh, they said, see you tomorrow at 8 PM. Go eat some candy, stay up all night. I'll probably be up all night too. I am hyped up on sugar, even though everybody says that that's not true. That's not how it works, but doggone it. I believe it. Cheers, everybody. See you tomorrow. A whole new month. Bye-bye. <laughs> a whole new month. I feel like I'm a whole month older. Mm-hmm.